Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Lord, we do want to thank you for Andy and for his family and for a life of faithfulness in response to you, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for just the strength of his faith that he's able to impart to others. And I pray for all of our hearts and our minds now, um, just that we would be wide open to everything that God wants to put in us through this time of ministry, and that we would be able to respond with that same um, joy and faithfulness that Andy has lived with. And so, and we just bless you in the name of the Lord. We pray the Spirit just um, just bless you and refresh you and strengthen you and empower you and empower us as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, Jason, very much. Um, good, so we're, we're looking this morning at uh, Mark 8. I didn't uh, pick up a Bible, so I'm going to be reading it from my, from my phone. Uh, so however you um, partake of Scripture, whether you have a Bible or you just want to listen, <coughs> or you want to turn to a, a phone, uh, we're going to be reading from Mark uh, chapter 8, um, verses 11 to 21, which I understand is part of your series, uh, Looking Through Mark's Gospel. So the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? May God give us understanding into his word as we we look at it. So it's great to be uh, part of this series looking at uh, Mark's gospel with you. Um, Some years ago I um, came across a a title of a Christian book written by Brian McLaren and Tony Campolo. If you know those characters, I don't agree with everything they they believe they're dear, dear, dear brothers in Christ, but um, not, not on, on, on board with all of it. But I love the title of their book, Adventures in Missing uh, the Point. Uh, this is the person who complains about a small detail, uh, but misses the overall good. 
Yeah, the Oscar-winning film. Yes, it was beautiful acting, uh, but I like my films 90 minutes maximum. Well, my team have won the football game 4-0, but we had fewer corners than the opposition. The church was full of people interested in finding God, but they didn't sing very loud. And you think, well, you're, you're missing the point. <laughs> if, if you've won an Oscar, how, how, who cares how long it is? If you've won the football match, corners are irrelevant. And if people are coming into church and the numbers, well, of course, they're not going to be willing to sing very loud, but at least they're there. And Jesus finds various groups in this passage that miss the point, as we will see. So as we begin, it's good, if I may, to set the scene a little as we remind ourselves of, of what the Gospels are doing. And the Gospels are doing two things. They're giving us a portrait of Jesus Christ, arranged so that we understand who he is and what he did, so that readers might uh, put their faith in him for life and eternity. The second thing is that there are a record of the way Jesus trains his followers, the twelve and indeed others, in kingdom living. And so Jesus is inviting people to see a new way of seeing and living life. And so we have sections of teachings that will help us grasp what he's about and how he is living. And that indeed is what we have particularly in this passage. Because it's easy to fail to grasp what's being taught in the Gospels. People in the church and outside uh, often have in their minds that Jesus is basically wanting us to be good and be nice to one another. Well, that may be an outcome, but the Gospels make it clear that left to ourselves, we struggle to be good and nice to one another. The ideals of the love of God and the love for our neighbour, which Jesus taught, require a personal revolution, a renovation of our hearts, a new birth, so that we can change to be uh, the kind of live the kind of lives that Jesus wanted. So if you're not uh, yet a believer, <clears throat> the material will draw you to decide on Jesus for yourself. And many people reading through the gospel accounts have, have almost to their surprise discovered that they meet a living God within that book and that their faith rises to, uh, towards that God and that they want to follow him. And if you are a believer this morning, well, Jesus is modelling in part how he would have you live. And so this section is doing uh, these two things. So uh, there was a little reference to uh, the lake um, or the Sea of Galilee in the, in the passage. So there's a little, uh, little uh, map of the region of Galilee in uh, northern Israel. And um, this, uh, get this to work, maybe. Maybe not. Yeah, oh, there it is. Look, there's a little red thing. It's kind of coming and going. Never mind. Yeah, uh, so you can see the red thing there. So that's kind of, so Gadara and Decapolis to the south is, it would seem, where Jesus is started off. Um, and he, he seems to go, it would seem, across to Magdala. You'll see that just west of the Sea of Galilee, uh, which um, is, uh, is also mentioned uh, in the wider text of, of Mark, uh, of Mark eight, so that's um, there's a slight significance to that as we as we go. 
So our passage begins with what I'm labelling um, a refusal to believe. Our passage starts with Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Uh, and the key word here is that the Pharisees wanted to, to question Jesus, to test him. Now, asking, asking questions is, is rarely a problem in, in, in the Christian faith. It's good that we bring our questions to God uh, and indeed to wiser Christians than us, perhaps, who may uh, know a little bit about the faith. Uh, and Jesus, throughout his ministry, was someone who listened to others' questions and asked questions himself. Someone has calculated that in Mark's gospel alone, there were 50 questions that Jesus asks. And the interesting thing is when Jesus is asked a question, he doesn't always answer it immediately. And sometimes he asks a question himself. So, so questions are not, a, not particularly a problem. <clears throat> but at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's a gathering tension between Jesus and his opponents, and these are included the Pharisees. Uh, these are the kind of pantomime villains of the Gospels, who ironically are the closest to Jesus of any of the groups in the Gospels, and yet Jesus has his biggest clash with these guys. They are religious leaders. They believed in the strict following of the Old Testament law as found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and they kind of gathered, particularly during the exile, when the children of Israel were out of, 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 um, uh, of Israel at, uh, in, in Babylon. And uh, these were people who believed that actually if only they had been slavishly following the law, then God would have been pleased with them and they wouldn't have gone into exile. And so they, as a, as a, as a party, of a, as a group of people, were, knew, knew the Bible inside out. So they would be daily reading the Bible. They would be memorizing the Bible. They would win any memory verse competition that they entered because they'd memorized the law and discussed it to the minutiae. And they had set themselves against Jesus. And you find that in, in chapter 3, early on in the gospel, you have Jesus clashing with these, with these religious leaders because they're all about keeping up appearances, looking, looking good in public, uh, and yet Jesus' problem was that they hadn't really fully understood that to, to, to know God is to have a heart turned towards him. And so the, the appearance of good was all very well, but actually what was going on in the heart? Now, Jesus himself, uh, actually at one point in John's Gospel, says you to these guys, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you will find eternal life. But these are the scriptures that speak about me, and yet you fail to come to me to have eternal life. So Jesus doesn't mince his words and his clash with these guys. Now, what the, what the um, religious leaders are doing in testing Jesus has, has some warrants in the Old Testament. So in the book of Deuteronomy, um, <clears throat> if you were seeking to work out whether a <clears throat> someone was a prophet or not, <clears throat> it was legitimate to, to test whether their prophecies were coming true, whether uh, heaven was involved. And so they're, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, basically, Jesus, give us a miracle to order. Yeah, you do, you do us a miracle and then we'll believe in you. It, it would be the equivalent in our setting of, of imagining that 
a queen arriving at your home in a black limousine with all the kind of entourage and servants. And you saying to the queen, I, I need to see the crown jewels if I'm going to believe that you're the queen. And you're thinking, really? <laughs> you see, Jesus was saying, it ought to be enough that the Lord of glory is in front of you. Uh, and so, you don't want to see a sign because you, you want to believe in me. You just, you're just playing games. You want an additional reason to not believe. And, and so the text says Jesus sighs deeply because he realises that they're playing a game. Now, I'm a, I'm a fan of what's, what's called Christian apologetics. Don't worry about the, the, the language. But basically having, a, having good reasons for faith. And there were some fantastic uh, scholars and people who've worked out some good reasons for faith. So if you've got a question about the faith, someone has thought it through and can explain it to you. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, one of my colleagues at Premier Radio, the unbelievable show, Justin Briley, does some brilliant conversations between Christians and non-believers, sometimes Christians and Christians, talking through issues. So there's nothing wrong <clears throat> with, with reasoning your faith at all. But you know, there are moments, and you find it actually in, in the show itself, where the non-believer are not really asking questions to learn. They're asking questions to justify their unbelief. <laughs> and it might be, there might be someone here today, and you may be here, and you're not really inquiring. You're kind of, maybe you've been dragged along by someone else, I don't know. Uh, and... You know that deep down this stuff is true, but you're, you're at the position of refusing to believe, if you're honest. The, um, <clears throat> you may have heard the character uh, C.S. Lewis, Cambridge scholar and Oxford Dom, particularly well known as the author of the Narnia Chronicles, but also read, read, uh, wrote many other Christian books to help people in faith. Did a series of radio recordings back in the, uh, during the time of the war, um, uh, the, the Second World War. And we read, he, he actually says this, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. This is his words. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. <laughs> and that's beautifully put, is that he realised that he had basically refused to believe and that actually faith was, was there and, and he bowed the knee to, to God. And so we are, of course, keen to assist anyone. If you've got questions, that's not a problem. Genuine questions. But make sure that those questions are not actually a, a barrier to you actually putting your faith and trust in Jesus and, and changing your life as a result of that. <clears throat> and so the, the, the passage um, moves, as I said, from, uh, from the Decapolis area across the Sea of Galilee uh, to the western part of, um, of the lake. Uh, and on the journey, we have an interaction between Jesus uh, and the disciples, which is the, the key part of our, of our passage this morning. So there they are in the boat uh, chatting. 
And, and if this is a refusal to believe, I want to suggest that, that this conversation is a failure uh, to understand. And so they have, um, it would seem, just one small uh, loaf. And there's obviously 13 of them, so it's not going uh, to do, do very much. Uh, obviously, they're in a, a, the kind of society where, where basically they're, they're living on subsistence income and bread would be a key part of their staple diet. And so one small loaf is not going to be any good for th- with 13 people to feed. And, and so they're, they're, they're kind of chatting about, about things. And Jesus uh, uses this to make a comment which he hopes will be a teaching session. So he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Okay. Now, yeast, as, as any of you know, make bread. Uh, you just need a little bit of yeast uh, in order to make a, a decent-sized loaf. We, we've got a home bread maker. I'm ho- I don't know how to do it, but I can stick the ingredients in, and, and, and there it comes. And you just need a, a small amount of yeast for a decent-sized loaf. Um, and so Jesus is... The, the, the idea of yeast in scripture is that yeast tends to have a corrupting influence on things. Um, and so Jesus is saying, if you allow the kind of approach of the Pharisees, which we've already talked about, and the Herodians, and these were people who, who followed the, the Herod uh, dynasty, the, the, who was the, the kind of ruler of uh, Israel, of, of, of the Galilee region at that time then that's going to miss you up, mess you up as, as followers of me. But the interesting thing is, we don't know for sure what Jesus' meaning is. What, what is this corrupting influence? What is it particularly that Jesus is, is having a go at? Is this, is this one influence by, by both Pharisees and Herodians? Or is it two? Uh, some say that the Pharisees is the religious spirit and the Herodians is a political spirit. And that that may be the case. But I think, um, <clears throat> I think uh, the context will help us because whatever it was connected with the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. So I've been doing a bit of biblical detective work and you can uh, judge whether you think I'm right or not. Okay, So uh, if you go back to their, um, this is the, the passage, aware of their discussion. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then he goes to talk about two miracles. The feeding of the 5,000. And so he asked this question and, and the answer was there's 12 basketfuls. And he asked this question about the seven loaves of the 4,000. And the answer is, well, seven basketfuls. And he said, do you still not understand? And, and perhaps for us, we think, yeah, I don't understand either. This isn't particularly clear. How, does this, how do these miracles relate to what you're talking about? So <clears throat> if you go back to, to, remember I said Mark's gospel points us to Jesus, but also teaches us about how we're to live as followers of Jesus. And so it's a teaching tool for them. So, here, here are the disciples, and they're with Jesus. And in chapter 1, Jesus drives out an impure spirit. Uh, Jesus, we read, healed many who had various diseases. Also in the cha- first chapter of, of Mark. Then he, Jesus, had healed many, 
<coughs> ah. Sorry, we we seem to have a battery failure, I think. If you could move the next one on for us. Oh. Forgive the technical details here. We've lost it. Oh, here we are. Thank you. Uh, next one. No. Give the battery a jiggle. That's what we do at home. It was all working well in rehearsals. <laughs> now it's gone completely now. It just happened to be the only bit in the talk where the actual PowerPoint mattered in terms of, <laughs> in terms of you know, in terms of keeping you going. Because I'm going. Through, I, it's quite important we look at the texts as we go through here. So here we are. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. <coughs> Okay, well, I can talk about it, and, and as, as we come, you're, you're, we'll, we'll come up on the screen in a minute. So, okay, so don't, don't worry too. Don't panic upstairs. That's all right. Okay, so uh, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He healed many in chapter 3. Um, we read, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. So these, these 12 disciples are getting involved in the ministry themselves. Okay? And then Jesus calms a storm. And then Jesus is getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. So he's, he's, healed, so he's released a demon. He then raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. Now, we kind of gloss over this. A dead girl has been raised to life. And a sick woman is mean made well. And then he calls the twelve and sends them out two by two to give them authority over impure spirits. They drive out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Uh, John the Baptist is beheaded by the Herodians, by, the, by Herod, upset with what John was saying. Then we have the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end of that, there's an interesting verse 51. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. And I think that's the clue to what Jesus is saying later. Is that they'd been seeing all these miracles. They'd seen the 5,000 being healed, and yet their hearts were hardened. And and the the text carries on in chapter 7. All who who uh, touched the edge of his cloak were healed. A Syrophoenician woman from outside of Israel, her child is lying on a bed uh, and, and demon-possessed, and Jesus heals the, the child from a distance. Um, he then uh, heals a man who is deaf and could hardly talk. Um, and then later on, uh, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more they did so, the more they kept talking about it. So this was creating quite a stir. People were amazed at Jesus' healing property. Uh, and then in chapter 8, verse 8, uh, we have the feeding of the 4,000. Okay? And so it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is that, guys, you've been participating in and observing all these amazing miracles. And yet... You don't quite get it. You've missed the point. 
And some have speculated that the the question that Jesus asked about the four, five thousand, four thousand, that the, the basket falls left over is to do with um, Jesus ministering to the four thousand outside of uh, of the Israel down to the Decapolis, which is a a Gentile non-Jewish area, and that the feeding of the five thousand is in a Jewish area, and this is demonstrating how Jesus is going to uh, bless both groups of people. That's a possibility, but I would suggest to you that. What Jesus is saying is that the, both the Pharisees and the Herodians fail to believe in me. And you disciples, even though you're with me, how much are you really grasping and understanding of what I am doing? And so he's aghast. He's amazed that they should miss the point. Back in uh, 2005, when I was, um, I was working with uh, what is now Premier Christianity magazine um, up in uh, up in London? Uh, we have a prayer time as a staff, and um, so it's an early one afternoon. Um, uh, my immediate boss, John Buckridge, the editor there, um, had been struggling with his feet, uh, had a painful foot, um, and so I asked for prayer. And you know how it is—you got a number of Christians together, different people ask for different things for prayer. And someone will pray for one thing or another. And you're kind of racking your brains, making sure that you remember everything that everyone asks. Cause you don't want anyone to feel left out and then upset at the end of it. That would be awful. So, so I, I thought, oh, nobody's prayed for John's foot, so I'll pray for John's foot. And now John comes from a, a, a kind of charismatic fellowship. And, and I was more cons- conservative in my outlook, if you like. And, and, and John says... Um, can you keep praying, Andy? Because my foot is starting to get hot and I think that's a good thing. Um, and I'm thinking, oh boy. <laughs> because I prayed for people to be better many times. We prayed in church for healing. But I'd never known God actually do something at that moment. <laughs> this was a surprise to me. Uh and, and yeah, and so there was a measure of healing. Now, as that happens, John still had to have an operation, so I'm not claiming anything more than that. But for me, that was an eye-opener. God was doing something in, in connection to my uh, prayers. And it's as if God was saying to me, Andy, you've read the Gospels many times. You've read this stuff. You know that I heal. But are you still unable to understand that I might actually do something here and now. And that was a, a journey of faith for me, to my shame, that, that yeah, I kind of theoretically believed that God could do stuff, but I never really expected it there and then when I asked him to. And this is, for the 12, a training in, in kingdom living. These were apprentices to Jesus. And Jesus was looking for them to so learn and understand that they can be engaged in things. And the, 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 the supernatural, the, the God intervening in, out, of, out of the blue shouldn't be a massive surprise given all that had happened. Uh, and, you know, we can, you know, we can look down on the 12, but we, we would, I suspect, I wonder if we'd be much the same. We can read this stuff, but, but do, we really, do we really understand and do we really uh, accept what God is wanting to do? Um, 
So I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear that there are different... Thank you, Jason, for your attempts. <laughs> so we'll, we'll abandon the PowerPoint now, um, but, um, but there weren't too many other slides, so don't worry. So if you're aware that you're low in your faith, what do you do? Well, I think it's fair to conclude that there are, there are hints of different kinds of faith in the Gospels. And there are there were clearly those who, if you like, have a basic level of, of faith. And the Twelve certainly had that. They, they were following Jesus... And they knew enough that when Jesus says, go and announce the kingdom of God and, and heal the sick, that they were able to do what Jesus had said, even though clearly they knew and understood very little about Jesus, interestingly. So we would be foolish to think that Jesus only works with the spiritual equivalent of a, a Lionel Messi or a Jason Roy, so to, to use a Rygate cricketer. Um, but it seems that there's a basic principle here about growing in faith as we seek to, to, to imitate God and, in, in, and imitate others who know God. So, so just a couple of points as we, as we cl- conclude uh, this morning. And the question is, uh, are we missing the point? Is, is God framing your uh, thinking? In the New Testament, we... The the Apostle Paul writing to the Colossians says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we can can come to church and then we can live the rest of our lives uh, kind of in a separate compartment and we can get on with using our skills and talents uh, to do decent jobs or to run run homes or uh, to... Know, do whatever it is that, that fills your, uh, your working or your retirement years. And, and God gives us common sense. And, and a lot of the time we use our common sense, we use our resources to, to solve problems. But do we ask, ever ask God whether there is something he might be looking to do, even in our mundane, and even in stuff that we know that we could do naturally, but maybe he wants to empower us to do? The, um, the, the mega church leader, uh, Rick Warren, uh, some of you heard of him, Purpose Driven Church was one of his books, and he's a uh, senior pastor of Saddleback Community Church in, uh, um, over in, uh, near Los Angeles. And he, 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 he recalls the time when God challenged him. He was, he was thinking about the small group ministry at Saddleback, and, um, and, and God was, um, he was thinking, I wonder what would happen if I could double the number of people in small groups. And he said, and a, and a voice came into his mind, which he trusted was God. And God said, well, what if it was 10 times the size? And he thought, gracious me, doubling would be amazing, but 10 times, how would we do that? And he sensed God expanding his thinking and he started a different approach to small group ministry and to the kind of people that would lead small groups, which actually expanded his, his thinking. Because you see, God was framing his thinking. Instead of him thinking, what, what could we do naturally? Actually, if God's involved, well, maybe, maybe there's something different. There's a famous quote, and I, I can't quite work out who started it. But the quote is this. Attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to failure unless God be in it. And as I say, various people have attributed the quote. I don't know. But, but it's, a great, it's a great idea, isn't it? That... You know, attempt something so great for God, he's doomed to fail unless God be in it. 
uh, and that's you know when we look to him for his grace. We can have human solutions, and sometimes they're God's solutions when we, we reason things out and use common sense. But sometimes God is looking to expand our thinking. And then secondly, are you acting according to uh, kingdom values? I didn't know about the advanced conference when I prepared this. Uh, you know, we'll have op- you'll have opportunity to go to a conference where you can learn uh, some of this uh, stuff and this material. But yes, God can frame our thinking, but it needs to move, move to our action. Uh, and you know, as, as, as in my prayer illustration, I didn't particularly on that occasion act with faith that God was going to do anything. But you can be sure that when I next prayed, there was a greater sense of expectation because God had, 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 had moved as he had. And he, well, don't get me wrong, God has not healed all the people I've ever prayed for. Far from it. But there's been a greater sense of faith that God could, could do things. Uh, and I'm very aware that preachers like me can have limited impact. We can you know, come in for, speak for half an hour and go away again. Uh, but, but the key thing is, is, is an atmosphere and a culture in a church of, of folk who are learning what it means to trust Jesus and, and can tell stories of how God has been at work and, and can encourage others who are, who, are, who are younger in the journey, who are less sure and, and can help them to move on just that little bit more. And we all, we all have ups and downs. We have seasons of life and Sometimes we're in a season of life of great faith. Other times we struggle big time. And we need others who can lift us because they're in a better season at that time. And clearly at this point, the disciples really didn't get it. But it wasn't long before they did. And you have when the coming of the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost. And you have Peter and John who meet the man at the beautiful gate who couldn't walk, remember? And he's begging there and he says, please Please give me some money. Uh, and, and they say, well, we're, we're pastors. We don't have any money. Uh, well, no, they didn't actually say that. But, but, we, you know, but what we have, we will give you in the name of Jesus. And they believe the risen Jesus was still with them. Uh, rise up uh, and walk. Because they, so a transition had taken place from not grasping the loaves and fishes to this moment where they now realize that they could, in Jesus' name, ask and and, and Jesus would would perform for them. Um, and so we want to be, be growing in our faith and understanding God more and more so that we become able to at least think and then act according to God's purposes and God's ways. And so the empowering spirit is enabling the disciples at this stage and that empowering spirit when we feel weak uh, and uncertain. Uh, can empower us. And I don't know what your situation is this morning. Um, could be to do with finances, could be to do with health, could be to do with relationships. Uh, and it could be tough to do that on your own. And maybe you just need to share need to share that need with someone and to say, look, pray for me and, and help me to, to take the actions I need to take in God's name that will enable him to work. It was Peter Drucker, the uh, management leader, who said, Culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> uh, and that means that, you know, as we create a culture and atmosphere, and I sense that that's happening here, then it's much easier that for us to imbibe this kind of approach than, than for us just to decide in our heads, yes, I can do it. You pick it up as you see others walking with God 
and, and trusting him. It's said that maybe 95% of our thoughts today are, are the same as yesterday because we're so often creatures of habit. Uh, but as we come to the Gospels, we are given a different picture, a different atmosphere, a different sense of, of how God is and how God wants to, how God wants to work. And as we put our, our gospel spectacles on, we, li- we see life very, very uh, differently. My, um, my slight namesake, M. Scott Peck, <coughs> wrote a book on personal growth called uh, The Road Less Travelled. Uh, and there's some good stuff in the book and there's some not so good stuff in the book. Uh, and I wouldn't endorse it all, but it's based on the poem by Robert Frost, who uh, wrote a poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Wood. And the very end of the poem is two roads uh, diverged in a wood and I I took the one less travelled by and that has made all the difference. And, and all of us, as we, as we conclude our time, at least my time here, chatting to you, have a, have a choice. We can, you know, we can take the, the broader road that many Christians take of, of, of kind of doing our best and trying to get through life uh, and trying to, to be good. Or, or we can take the road less travelled by, which says, I want to be apprenticed to Jesus. I want to learn from him. I want him to stretch me. And I want to have the kind of faith that, 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 that enables me to, to not miss the point, but to, to grasp the point. And that the point is, is that I should live to the glory of God uh, and, and in following Jesus, see his kingdom expanded in, in the realm of influence that God has placed me in. So may God help each of us to take that road less travelled. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.